Welcome to uh, our final chapel in our Calling Beyond Covenant week. Um, we've been blessed by Marshall Teague and Caitlin Newsom, and this morning we have the privilege of hearing from Ralph Hill. Uh, Ralph graduated from college uh, from Furman University and received his JD from the University of Georgia Law School. He attained the rank of captain in the U.S. Army where he was awarded the Army Commendation Medal, a Bronze Star, and the Republic of Vietnam Service Medal. In 1971, he moved to Lookout Mountain to serve as a judicial circuit judge, and in 1994 was appointed as a superior court judge, where he served until he retired in 2009. Ralph and his wife Sylvia are members of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, where Ralph serves as a ruling elder. He has served with the Gideons, and he and Sylvia have been involved with missions work in Brazil, in Russia, the Ukraine, Uganda, Tanzania, and Cuba. And in 2009, they planted a church with MTW in a borough of London, England. Uh, Ralph's love for Jesus is both contagious and humbling, and I am thrilled that you all get to meet him this morning. Please give a warm Scots welcome to Judge Ralph Hill. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, really an awesome privilege to speak to your generation. Uh, as I was preparing, my mind went back to uh, 2004 when I had an opportunity to go to Dalton to speak to 1,500 U.S. Army troopers of the 1st Battalion of the 108th Armored Division before they left to go to Iraq. We uh, distributed to them Gideon Personal New Testament. And I was amazed at the hunger of these troopers as they went into battle. And I think the Lord laid that on my heart because your generation is preparing for battle. In a war just as deadly or even more deadly than the one into which they went, and so, as I come to you this morning, I come with the words of Christ in Acts 1-4, the resurrected Lord, where it says, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And the word this morning that Jesus has laid on my heart to you is don't depart from this place without receiving the promise of the Father. You know, uh, the Christian surveyor Barner says that the church has lost 1.7 million 
of your generation in a decade, a single decade. And it also says that seven out of 10 high school graduates are leaving the faith. But be encouraged because the same survey shows that born again millennials tend to want to evangelize more than any other generation. <laughs> I find that very comforting. My son-in-law, Jameson Griffin, who's with us this morning, I called him last night and he had some wise counsel to me, which I think is really the theme of this talk. He said, mention to these millennials, dilly dilly. <laughs> you recognize it, don't you? Comes from the game of thrones, really. But the Anheuser-Busch company has, looking at the Game of Thrones, decided that they'll put a king before you. King Dilly Dilly. <laughs> you might be impressed that an old retired judge Google that. <laughs> Do you know what it means? Do you know what the creators of Dilly Dilly have to say about it? It means nothing. <laughs> it means nonsense. But there is another king, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and he has a different call it's take up your cross come and follow me to bring the kingdom of God on this earth the kingdom of truth an everlasting kingdom so the question this morning is which king are you going to follow and the real issue is, I believe, the issue of regeneration. In Reformed theology, we have pushed this issue to the back. Oh, it comes up every now and then. We mentioned being born again and the absolute necessity of the new birth. Well, I want you to listen to what Calvin says about it. A fellow named Johnny Calvin, remember him? Institutes of the Christian religion, he writes and wrote, first we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value. Therefore, he has to become ours and to dwell within us. So is the king this morning dwelling in you? And I tell you this and I bring this up because I want to share the testimony of one 
who's very much like you. He was raised in a Christian home, had praying grandparents and parents. He went off to a Christian school. It was in 1961 that he went to the university and liberalism was hitting the U.S., coming from Europe. Everything in Europe comes and gets here 20 years later, according to Tim Keller, and that is what it come to America, and, and I studied the Old Testament and New Testament with professors that told me this book was not the inerrant and infallible and inspired Word of God. It was a book written by men, and in my sinful nature, because I had not been regenerated, although I had been religious, I began to believe those things they were teaching there and are teaching now in ever greater and greater degree about evolution. And I became a philosophical existentialist that believed we make and create our own world. We go out to impact it for ourselves, to follow the king dilly-dilly. And then I went on to law school and heard about something called legal positivism, and I appreciate you having a law professor come, Grant, to talk about the law in the context of the Christian worldview. I didn't receive that. I heard about legal positivism, which is another word for man-centered law, which has led us to decisions like Roe v. Wade and the approval of abortion led us to decisions on same-sex marriage, declaring the Federal Marriage Act unconstitutional because it defined marriage as one man, one woman. And so believing that, I entered the U.S. Army as a convinced liberal. And while I was there, and even before that, I saw the real face of evil as I followed the wrong king. I was a legal officer for the student brigade at Fort Benning and I reviewed cases for our commanding officer and there came a file about the My Lai massacre. You can Google about it. I'd been raised to believe that American soldiers were good fellows that gave out chocolate to children. And in the file that I read, I saw that one platoon of C Company went through a village, didn't receive one hostile round, and slaughtered innocent old men, women, and children, and committed other atrocities that I won't mention here today. The face of evil, and as a liberal, I couldn't explain it. And as a liberal, with no ruling absolutes in this world, you can't explain it. But I got out of the Army after returning from Vietnam and came to Northwest Georgia to practice law and continued to see the face of evil as I prosecuted criminal cases. And then after I'd, uh, entering into the general practice of law, practiced law in Lafayette for 10 years, Lafayette, Georgia. 
in the four counties here, and Dade County is one of the counties that I practice law with. And you know, being convicted as I was that liberalism really wasn't a, the truth, when you don't believe in the truth, you believe it's all about you and following the wrong king. And it leads to the destruction of human life. And I hurt a lot of people. I hurt uh, my family. I became a workaholic running after the American dream of money and power and reputation. And by the worldly standards, I was doing good. But I had a God-sized hole in my heart, as St. Augustine said, and only God can fill that in myself or any other human being because we're all made in the image of God. Until we find our rest in Him, we have no rest. And so I married, had children, and I had a mother that had survived as a widow the loss of my dad, and she knew my life was spiraling out of control, but I couldn't do anything about it. So she'd call and suggest and ask, who's going to teach your children the truth? And I, of course, as a secular humanist, I said, well, I will, Mama. And I, but she called me every Sunday afternoon because she loved me. And so that rocked on until after trying a case in this county in May of 1987, I went home to get a telephone call that she'd had a heart attack. And I rushed to Newton, Georgia, and they'd got her heart started back, but oxygen had been deprived from her brain, and so she was what we define as brain dead, and I had to make the decision along with my sister to remove the life support. And it took 24 hours. And I sat beside her bed, and I realized, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'd built my life on sand. You know, Jesus said that if you build your life on sand, the waves and the rain and the storm will come and your house will be destroyed. And so she passed away and it was 30, about 30 days later that I found in her belongings a little Gideon New Testament. Grant mentioned that I'm a Gideon and this is the reason. I opened up this little Gideon New Testament, the Word of God. I read the plan of salvation. John 1.12 is the verse that captured my heart. Does it capture yours this morning? But as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I want to tell you, young brothers and sisters, that I was involved with the church at that time. I was teaching a Sunday school class. Remember I went to a Christian college 
And I took a course in Old Testament and New Testament. I had a lot of head knowledge. And maybe there's someone here today just like me. But you know all the things about the gospel. But I want to ask you this morning. I want to ask you when and where and how this Christ who's been lifted up here at Covenant College and all through the process of your short pilgrimage on this earth, when and where and how have you come to receive Christ and all that He's done for us? Because your testimony about that is the most powerful thing you can give for the glory of God. And so I, that day, June the 3rd of 1987, bowed the knee before the real King. And I was converted and born again. And I became a committed disciple and hopeful disciple of Jesus Christ. And you're hopeful disciples of Jesus Christ too this morning, I hope, having seen the real King. And I had several mentors, and one of them named Herb Cole, who had been instrumental in my salvation, he came and said, I need to read some books. And he recommended a guy named Francis Schaeffer. So I began to read Francis Schaeffer's books and consume them. There's another author I read, John Piper. And John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, really convicted me. So when an opportunity came, of course, I want to be very honest. That day, June the 3rd of 1987, I know something really happened in my life. Because I went to the same law office. I went to the same courts. But all of a sudden, I cared about people. And I was interested in what Francis Schaeffer said in True Spirituality. I understand you've had a conference here on it. That we live our lives moment by moment, trusting in Christ and all that He's done for us. And we live by the truth and love simultaneously. And that is the key to the Christian life. And I was doing that. I cared about people, not just their legal problems, I tried to see underneath to see the spiritual problems they were fighting and they were struggling so mightily with. And people were converted. Even had a client came in and said that he'd heard it on the street. And I said, what have you heard? He said, I've heard you become a Christian. <laughs> I said, that's right. How about you, my friend? You see, Christ made a difference in my life. Christ made a difference in my commitments because self was killed that day. And so as I followed Christ, as I continued to witness to lawyers and to clients and friends and became actively involved beyond mere nominal Christianity in my church, I felt, as Grant said, the call when it entered the time of retirement after being a judge to know Young people, how it helped me to sit as a judge in the Lookout Mountain Judicial Circuit because God's Ten Commandments are not optional. 
And sin is real, and the face of evil is real. And so as a judge, I sought to honor Christ in every way possible by making judgments that were in accordance with justice and mercy. But then we went to London, and we worked there, and I saw in London something. I saw what's happened in Europe, and it's coming here. Secular humanism, which is eating Europe alive, and they don't know how to deal with it. A multicultural place, a pluralistic society, but what place does the gospel have? True life. What place does it have? The gospel in a pluralist society, the gospel in a secular age. And I come here to tell you that the myth of the separation of church and state, the, the opinions we've received by the U.S. Supreme Court on that, try to keep us quiet because there's someone behind it and it's evil and Satan and the devil. And so we must speak. But in 2012, we returned because I had developed cancer. And it was uh, serious surgery that I went through. And then in 2012, I was told that there were eight tumors in my liver. 2012, think about that. Six years ago. I was told I had one to three months to live. And my pastor came with an article from Dr. John Piper. And the title of it, and he wrote it while he was waiting to go into surgery the next day for prostate cancer. The title of it is Don't Waste Your Cancer. And you can change that to whatever you you want to put in there, don't waste any trial you're going through. Ten ways not to do it. You can Google it. And you know, the last one is this. Make it a platform. Make it a platform to declare the truth of the gospel in your life. How Jesus has saved you. How he has delivered you how he is continuing to work in your daily life moment by moment as you present the gospel to your generation, as you refuse to follow King Dilly Dilly and follow the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But you must know the gospel. You must understand it. And, and God has you here for this very purpose because he's got a call on your life beyond covenant. Whatever field you enter into, whether like Catherine Newsom, you enter into Chattanooga to help with the sports ministry, or like Marshall Teague, you enter into restoring God's creation, follow the right king and refuse. And how do you do it? See, this is the question. This is always the question. And why do you think Jesus, the resurrected Lord, told his disciples, wait here in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And they waited. And they prayed. And finally he came. And that is what you must do here. 
in your private cell prayer groups, as you study the Word of God, you must look for the promise of the Father because you see He is real. He's alive. He's the resurrected King. And He invites us each and every day to come and die. And as C.S. Lewis wrote so eloquently, every morning is a new beginning. This can be a new beginning for you. Let's pray. Father God, what an awesome privilege to come this morning to address these soldiers. Soldiers of the cross, the army of God. And oh, Father, I pray that you would send the promise of the Father to this place, to this time, to this day. And I pray for any and everyone here within the sound of my voice that they would see the total depravity of man the helplessness of ourselves to do anything in and of ourselves, but that they would understand and see the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, and for the glory of God, they would prepare as they soak before you and your truth here through the faculty and the staff, that, Father God, they would truly, truly follow Jesus, the real King, till their final days and last breath. And Father, we just pray that Jesus will be glorified in each and every life, each and every soul, because it is all about you, Lord Jesus. It's all about what you've done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day. Thank you for this privilege. I pray, Lord Jesus, you'll take it and use it in each and every life. In your name we pray, and for your glory, your kingdom come, and your will be done. Amen.